Hi, hey, welcome to The Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, and those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm Kay Albert Little, an evangelical convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is born out of one particular idea. The journey began for me when a Protestant pastor I was working for asked me the question, what's more important, the Bible or tradition? Well, I was stumped, and in answering that question, I journeyed into the history of my faith, the history of the biblical canon, the history of the early church, up through the Reformation, and beyond. And it was then, as I began reading from these different sources, I encountered the Catholic Church. And in reading from actual Catholic sources, I realized then that what I thought Catholics believed, what I thought I had known all along about Catholicism, was an oftentimes dead wrong. It was based in large part on misinformation and more often than not on simple misunderstandings. Well, this podcast serves to fill in that same gap. The gap between what you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. Each week I have a real Catholic conversation with a real Catholic thinker from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. And this week, I have a fantastic discussion for you. I am joined by Jeffrey Pinion, who has written a book all about understanding what's happening in the Mass, the prayers of the Mass, the prayers, the actions, the meaning of the Mass. This has got to be the best episode you'll find on podcast talking about what's happening at the Mass. Jeffrey knows so much about what's happening behind the scenes at the Mass, the meaning of the prayers, the origin of the actions and the gestures, what the priest is doing, what we are doing. It's incredible. And actually, this episode spilled over into a second episode, a part two, another hour and a half of conversation about the Mass. So this Part of the episode will cover the first part of the Mass, and episode 1 to 7, coming in the pipeline shortly, or already out if you're listening to this later on, covers the second half of the Mass. You're going to love it. You're going to love both of these conversations, so start here, enjoy this, and come back for part 2, because, gosh, it's so in-depth, and this will honestly just transform how you uh, participate in in the mass, or if you are not a Catholic yet, how you will understand how to take part in the mass. It's uh, amazing. I can't underscore that enough times. You're going to love it. This conversation and all of the conversations on this podcast are brought to you by our patrons at patreon.com slash cordial catholic, whose monthly support helps to underpin this show and to keep it going and growing every single week. Patrons at the $5 or more a month level are entered automatically into draws for books every single month. That's a small way of saying thank you, and everyone gets access to behind the scenes, early access to episodes, and those kinds of things as well. I also have a one-time donor to thank this week. Thank you, Stephen, for your very, very generous one-time donation. Those can be done at paypal.me slash cordialcatholic, and those help the show as well. So thank you, Stephen. That's incredible, and, and God bless your amazing support. Guys, without any further ado, here's my conversation with Jeffrey Pinion on the prayers, the actions, and the meaning of the Mass. You're going to absolutely love this, I guarantee. Please listen and enjoy. Hey, 
Hey guys, thanks for joining us. Thanks for being here. Welcome back and hello. Uh, just a reminder, if you are watching us on YouTube, we're also on podcasts at The Court of the Catholic, everywhere you find fine podcasts. And if you're listening on podcasts, we're also on YouTube at youtube.com slash The Cordial Catholic to watch these interviews as well. We're talking with the Mass this week. It's going to be a fantastic discussion. I'm joined by Jeffrey Pinion. He's a software developer by trade and a lifelong Catholic. He combines his technological skills with his love for the Church to develop tools to help the Church, help him and others work with Scripture, the Catechism, and the Church Fathers. He's the author of Praying the Mass, a two-volume series on the Mass that coincides with the new English translation of the Mass, and that's what we're going to dig into today. It's going to be fantastic. Jeffrey, thank you for being here. Welcome and hello. Thank you so much for having me. I am, I am thrilled to dig into the Mass with you. Before we begin that, I just want to know how you got involved with doing these kinds of things, because it's a great, it's a great confluence when you have these skills to make things like the Catechism or the Church Fathers or Scripture more accessible. It's fantastic that you found a, a way of doing that. How did you begin to use your software skills to help others access these, these resources? Uh, I got into computers and software development uh, at a ver very early age. Um, we had like a Commodore 64 in the house growing up, so I was writing programs in BASIC. Um, and in high school, I went to a, a county magnet technology school and we all had to learn C++ programming freshman year. And I very quickly got into picking up programming languages. So I've had that, uh, I've had that quality, that characteristic about me for quite some time. Uh, and almost for about as long, um, I've been interested in the liturgy and in scripture. Um, I come from a Catholic family. I'm the seventh of eight kids. My oldest brother is a priest. Uh, I was an altar boy when I was younger. Uh, I would say I was one of the altar boys who actually paid attention. Um, I liked going like I liked going to CCD. I liked listening to the mass. I would whisper along if I was in the pews with things that the priest was saying. Um, and as an altar boy, I got to be up close and hear the silent prayers of the priests. I got to see some of the actions that the congregation might generally miss. Um, now I say I'm a lifelong Catholic because I'm not a convert or a revert, but during college, I was not a very observant Catholic. I would be more observant at home, but for a number of reasons at college, I just was not really practicing my faith. I never really lost it, but I just didn't practice it. However, uh, in college, I was in a fraternity and I managed to hold two positions in the fraternity over my years there. One was as vice president, where I was educating the people who wanted to join the fraternity. And one was as the ritual chairman, which is where I was teaching the brothers in the fraternity what our, what our fraternity rituals mean and how they're supposed to be carried out. And so even during this time when I was wayward from my faith, God had found a way to keep me interested in, in liturgy, essentially, in, in ritual, and not just in ritual itself, but in teaching others what ritual means. Uh, after college, I moved into an apartment that was two blocks from a Catholic church, and I kind of took that as a sign, like the, <laughs> the most affordable housing for me is right next to a Catholic church, yeah. Queenship of Mary Parish, a very, very blatantly Catholic name. Uh, so I went to confession. I got back into the regular practice of my faith. 
uh, and I got very involved in the parish. I was a lector. I joined the RCIA team, which if some of your listeners don't know, the RCIA is the Rite of Christian Initiation for Adults. It's how unbaptized adults uh, and some baptized adults uh, can enter the Catholic Church. Um, I joined the Bible study at my parish, and that was how I found out about uh, Ascension Press's Great Adventure Bible Timeline Bible study series, which really, it, it was groundbreaking. It really opened my eyes and changed the way that I read and understood the scriptures. And as I got deeper into the scriptures, I started to become more aware of how they were used in the liturgy. The things I was saying and the things I was hearing, I was like, I know where that is in the Bible. Like, I, I know the context of these things. I know why we're saying this particular verse from the Bible at this part in the Mass. Uh, I was, however, the youngest person in the Bible study at my parish, and so I looked for another parish nearby with a young adult Bible study group, and I found one. And within a year, the organizer of that Bible study moved away. And I kind of thought maybe I should offer to take up the mantle and try to lead the Bible study group. But because I wasn't from the parish, I didn't, I didn't want to intrude. But then I got an email from the person who coordinates all of the Bible studies at that parish that other young adults from the group recommended me. And so I took that as a providential sign that, yes, this is something God wanted me to do. And even if I wasn't sure I was equipped, he would help equip me. He would help me. Um, and part of that equipping was, hey, why don't I write some programs to help me search scripture faster, uh, to search the catechism, to find when does the catechism talk about particular verses of scripture. Uh, and then more recently, I've developed programs to help me find where the church fathers talk about a particular passage of scripture. Um, but the real turning point was that that same parish in 2007, they hosted a three-night talk on Pope Benedict's encyclical Deus Caritas Est. And I decided I, I would attend. It sounded interesting. I loved it. I read the encyclical. I really enjoyed it. And then my brother, who's a priest, told me that Pope Benedict had just written another document. It was 2007, uh, Sacramentum Caritatis, uh, which is a post-synoidal apostolic exhortation, which is the $100 Catholic way of saying it's strong encouragement from the Pope after a synod or a meeting of bishops. And the bishops had been meeting about the Eucharist. And so Pope Benedict's document is called the Sacrament of Charity about the Eucharist. And I read it and I devoured it and I wanted to read more. And I just kept following the footnotes. Pope Benedict quotes this other document. Let me read that. I went all the way back to Vatican II and a hundred years or more back. And I found myself gravitating towards the scripture and liturgy and how they come together. And there was one paragraph in particular from Sacramentum Caritatis that stood out to me. Uh, it's from part two, which is about the Eucharist as a mystery to be celebrated in the section about interior participation at mass. And it's paragraph 64. And there's just a few sentences from it that I wanna share with you and your listeners. Uh, the church's great liturgical tradition teaches us that fruitful participation in the liturgy requires that one be personally conformed to the mystery being celebrated. The Synod of Bishops asked that the faithful be helped to make their interior dispositions correspond to their gestures and words. Otherwise, they would risk falling into ritualism. 
Hence, there is a need to provide an education in Eucharistic faith capable of enabling the faithful to live personally what they celebrate. The bishops unanimously indicated a mystagogical approach to catechesis, which would lead the faithful to understand more deeply the mysteries being celebrated. And that was what did it for me. I was like, I could write a mystagogical catechesis on the mass. I have, I have knowledge, I have resources, and I have some skill. Um, and mystagogy was not a new term to me because as a member of the RCIA team, part of the RCIA process after the catechumens have been initiated at the Easter Vigil Mass, RCIA doesn't come to a halting stop right there. There's a couple more sessions about mystagogy, which is basically now that you've been through the sacraments, now that you've experienced them, we can teach you more about them and you'll understand it better because you've lived the experience. Um, and mystagogy is an ancient practice. Uh, some of the most famous mystagogical catechesis come from St. Cyril of Jerusalem from uh, the late 4th, early 5th century. Um, so it's been the practice of the church for, for centuries. Um, and the catechism gives this really brief but succinct definition or, or declaration of its purpose, which is to initiate people into the mystery of Christ by proceeding from what is visible, the sign, to what is invisible, the thing being signified. And so, like right there, there's a lot to unpack. The sacraments are made with the sacraments are celebrated with matter, but they point to a spiritual reality. Um, and so you have to really understand the matter of the sacrament in order to explain to someone what the meaning behind it is. Uh, and Pope Benedict mentions that there are three key elements that a mystagogical catechesis should, should carry out. Uh, it needs to interpret the liturgical rites in the light of salvation history. In other words, using scripture as a source, how can we, how can we identify and interpret the liturgical rite or the, the action or the sign or the symbol? Then explain the signs and the symbols themselves. Once you've interpreted them scripturally, then explain what the signs and the symbols mean in the rites as we celebrate them. And then finally, and this is probably the most important, to relate those rites to the all dimensions of Christian life, because that's what the bishops were trying to avoid. Like, if you don't know how to live it, then it's simply ritual. It's ritualism. You need to be able to leave Mass and be changed by the sacrament that you've celebrated. Um, so yeah, in 2008, inspired by Pope Benedict, um, I decided to write a book, and then I found out the translation was changing, and I was like, even better, I can I can kill or I can give birth to two birds with one stone. <laughs> no, that doesn't make sense. I can kill two <laughs> birds with one stone, and they can be resurrected. Um, I can explain the what and the why of the changes while also just giving an explanation of the scriptural origins to all of the mass. I want to help people transition from just words to prayers and not just the words themselves, but all the gestures and the postures and the actions. Um, so I wrote this two volume series about a decade ago. Uh, the first one was, I was able to write it because it was uh, an economic downturn in the US and I was only working four days a week. So God gave me an extra day a week uh, to devote to the book. 
Oh, it's fantastic. And this is really, I mean, I love this. I love, and that's a good explanation of, of behind the scenes of why this, what this came about. And I think of two things. And the, and the first is the experience of so many Catholics. Now I'm a convert. Listeners know that I'm a convert to the Catholic faith. Uh, and a lot of the, the people that I met in my non-denominational churches, my evangelical churches that I was a part of, uh, and I was in a bunch of different churches, Baptist, Pentecostal, non-denominational, at the end of my time as a Protestant. And the Catholics I would meet would describe the mass as a ritual, right? It, they the big the big switch for them becoming evangelical Christian would be going from this ritual to relationship. They always use these keywords, right? I, the Catholic Church was very ritualistic, was very just following these these rubrics, we just doing these things, kind of vain repetition. And now I'm evangelical and I have a relationship with Christ, right? That's what I always heard about the Catholic faith as a non-Catholic. So I became a Catholic, of course. And then I think of like Scott Hahn's experience. He's a famous convert. I've had him on, on this show before, talking about the Eucharist, actually. And his description of the Mass, which he came to with a Bible and notepad in hand, his first Mass, right? And he and he immediately saw all these scriptural connections to the Mass because he was so steeped in the Bible. I think of those two things and how different they are, both describing the same Mass, right? And And the difference to me in those is what you and your book do right is to illuminate those scriptural connections for the readers right to take them from that oh look the mass is very ritualistic the mass is just these repeated prayers and we're just standing up sitting down kneeling these kind of things to actual that that deep understanding of what's happening in the mass rooted so deeply in scripture right that that i think mm-hmm. your book fills moves a person across that that gap and so I am so pleased to talk about it today because that's exactly what what I want to do with this show, right? Just move those people from here, here to here, and at least let them know that in in the mass we're not just saying these things for no purpose. There's these are all every gesture, every action. You have a whole chapter on the sign of the cross before we even really begin. <laughs> like that's the very the first thing that begins the mass essentially, right? And you have a whole chapter on that. The every action. Is, is deeply rooted in, in scripture, in our faith. And we, at least if listeners who aren't Catholic can understand that, at least they are, are moved a little bit towards understanding our, our faith, right? Versus this, this, just seeing from the outside, this, this really plain kind of ancient ritual we just do and, and don't know why we're doing, we're doing it. Right. Yeah. It's the, the more, the more you are familiar with scripture, the more the liturgy will pop out at you, the, the more quickly you will you will appreciate the things you're saying and the things you're doing. And like you were saying with the sign of the cross, um, if you if you realize how rooted the sign of the cross is in scripture, and then you let that take root in you, now you are rooting your spiritual life, not just you know the few seconds that you're doing the sign of the cross at mass, but you can root your life in what the sign of the cross means. And that's why I spend a whole chapter on it because it's not just reminding people you go from the top to the bottom and then from the left to the right because we're Catholic and not, or because we're Western and not Eastern. Yeah. Um, but just like think about your head Think about your torso. Think about your shoulders. What are scriptural significances of those things? Um, and and we'll get into that. But even before the sign of the cross, um, there's the entrance procession, 
Um, and one of the first things that I wondered is like, I, I had occasionally gone to non-Catholic liturgies, especially while I was on the RCIA team. I wanted to know what sort of religious traditions other people would be coming from. And I noticed that, especially in non-liturgical churches, the service begins with everyone already in place. There's no procession. But the Mass begins without everybody already in place. The congregation might be in place, but there's this procession from the back of the church to the sanctuary. Um, and being Catholic, I then started to think about how processions are scriptural. Uh, you find them all the time in the Old Testament, and usually the Ark of the Covenant is involved. Um, but even before the Ark of the Covenant, the procession of the Israelites through the Red Sea um, but then once you have the ark, uh, in Joshua chapter three, they cross the Jordan and the ark goes first and then stands in the river while everybody crosses. And then the ark leaves, uh, around Jericho in Joshua chapter six, there's a procession with trumpets around the city. Uh, second Samuel chapter six, the ark comes to Jerusalem and there's a procession and David is dancing. Um, and then I thought, what about New Testament processions? And I realized that the Mass kind of recreates Holy Week through Pentecost. How does Holy Week begin? What do we celebrate with on Palm Sunday? Jesus's triumphant entry into Jerusalem. And what's happening during that? There's a procession of people, there's music, there's singing, there's joy. And that reminded me of the entrance procession. And then I realized that in the entrance procession itself, there are signs of Christ everywhere. The altar itself in the sanctuary, because the sanctuary is kind of a symbol of heaven, the altar is a sign of Christ. And where is the procession heading? The altar. So Christ is there as our goal. Now, I'm going to use this, you know, the typical Sunday liturgy as, as my example here. At the front of the procession, there's usually a crucifix. And so that's an incredibly obvious symbol of Christ. And that's Christ leading us to heaven. Oftentimes in the midst of the procession, there's a deacon or someone else holding the book of the Gospels. And there you have Christ in our midst as we journey from earth to heaven. And then finally at the back, you have the priest who is an altar Christus, who's, who's in persona Christi, and he represents Christ shepherding us from behind. Um, if you ever watch videos of, of shepherds keeping their flocks properly, there's usually like sheep in front who are who are like the, the leaders of the flock, and the shepherd is, is there in the back making sure all of the sheep keep going forward. And so right there, you have so many signs of Christ and that's, that's what the entrance procession does. It reminds us that we are on a pilgrimage. We are moving from one place to another, and that Christ is present ahead of us, in front of us, in our midst, and behind us on this entire journey. And once I saw that, once I was like, the entrance procession is like Palm Sunday, I then started to see how other parts of the Mass kind of fit that Palm Sunday to Pentecost framing. Um, and I don't want to. I don't want to give away too many details yet. Um, but 
what does what's the first thing that Jesus does after he gets into Jerusalem? Not to quiz you, he shows up at the temple. Yeah, and the temple has the money changers in it, and they are not uh, they're not being fair with the char- with the prices they're charging. And so Jesus goes in, he he cleanses the temple. That's not the only thing he does, though. There are also all these marginalized people, sick, ill, you know, lame, these people who need attention. And then Jesus ministers to them. He heals them. And I was like, when when does the temple get cleaned? When does healing happen? It's right after the entrance procession. It's the penitential rite. When when our temples of the Holy Spirit, we ask for them to be cleansed and to be healed. And there's several different um, there's several different ways that the penitential rite can go. And as I'm talking about this now, I realize I skipped the sign of the cross. I'll get back to that in a minute. Um, but the one of the particular ways to do is the the confidior, the I confess, and the I confess ends up being a very it's a full body prayer. Um, nowadays, if you if you follow the rubrics and all, like first of all, this is a prayer being said by everybody. And yet you say in the single person, and there's very few places in the mass where the congregation uses this, the first person singular. Usually we say we and us and our, but in the confidior, we say, I confess to almighty God. Um, and things that pop out at me from that prayer, uh, we say that we have sinned in thought, in word, in what we've done and what we have failed to do. And that sins of omission part, you think about it, if Jesus never sinned, that means that Jesus never had an evil thought. He never spoke an evil word. He never did something wrong. And he never failed to do the right thing. And now I know why Paul says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Like, how do you meet that standard? And and then when we say we've done these sins, we don't say the devil made me do it. We say, through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault. And we we strike our hearts. And it reminds me of Mark chapter 7, verses 20 to 23, where Jesus is saying, it's not what you put into your body that defiles you. It's what comes out of you, what comes from within, out of your heart. That's where the evil comes from. So it's this little chastisement, this little mortification that we're doing as we pray this prayer. And then in the end of the prayer, we say, therefore I ask blessed Mary, ever virgin, all the angels and saints, and you, my brothers and sisters, to pray for me to the Lord our God. And I mean, the people to your left and right, they're sinners too, but we're counting on their prayers to help restore us to right communion with God and with one another. And whenever we get to the prayer of the faithful, a lot of times there'll be like, for all the prayers we hold in the silence of our hearts. Right then, I remember that as I was praying, I ask you, my brothers and sisters, to pray for me to the Lord our God. Everybody else in the church has just asked me to pray for them. And the prayer of the faithful is when I remember that, and I actually act on it. Um, but I've gotten ahead of myself. I got to the, the penitential, right? I skipped the sign of the cross. I skipped a whole chapter. How do I do that? <laughs> Um, the sign of the cross. It's the seminal Catholic gesture and prayer. Uh, it pretty much 
begins and ends everything that we do as Catholics. And it's not just enough to say the words in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and make the gesture like that's that's not enough. In order to understand the words that you're saying and in order to understand the gesture you're making, you need to slow it down. Um, and first of all, the cross, it's not a uniquely Christian symbol. Um, the Hebrew alphabet, the last letter of their alphabet is Tav. And over the course of centuries, the shape of that letter has taken various forms. Uh, in early forms, it kind of looked like a T. And if you've ever seen a, a Franciscan cross, the Franciscan cross usually just looks like a, a T, not a, a cross beam, but just a T. Um, and over time, the letter kind of looked like a plus sign or an X. But this this word, this letter Tav is also the Hebrew word for mark, uh, as in like a mark on something. And so in the book of the prophet Ezekiel, in chapter 9, uh, God tells Ezekiel, or, or God is speaking to Ezekiel, telling a certain man to go through Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over the sins being committed in Jerusalem. And that word mark there is the letter Tav. And you can think of that as uh, the original cross. And then in the book of Revelation, in chapter 7, there's the angel who says, uh, I, I, or John sees an angel put the seal of the living God he marks the foreheads of the servants of God with the seal of God. And that seal is like the sign, the mark in Ezekiel chapter nine. And so we have this, the cross is not just introduced into Christianity as the symbol of the crucifixion, but it, it preceded Christianity in, in some sort of like seed form waiting to be uncovered by Christ in the new covenant. Uh, the cross also shows up elsewhere in the Old Testament. Um, typology, which is the practice or the, the science or the art of finding something in the Old Testament that prefigures, in a way, uh, a New Testament reality. Uh, the church fathers loved typology, and they found a, a, a prevision of the cross in the book of Exodus in chapter 17. This is after they've, this is after the Israelites have gone through the sea, but before they've gotten to Mount Sinai, they end up in battle with the Amalekites. And Moses says to Joshua, choose a bunch of people to fight. I'm, I'm not personally going to fight. I'm going to stand on this hill with the staff of God in my hand. And this will be the way that I participate in the fight. And Moses is standing up there and I have to move back so the people on YouTube can see. He's standing up there with the staff of God in his hand, but he's an old man. His hand gets tired, so he switches hands. You know, eventually he gets two men, uh, Aaron and Hur, to stand at his right and at his left and hold up his arms as he holds the staff of God in his hands. And as long as he does that, the battle is won. And so you have the church fathers saying, you have Moses, who is a type of Christ, holding the staff of God between his arms with a man on his right and a man on his left on a rock on a mountain. How is this not the crucifixion? How, how is this not a symbol of the crucifixion? And so there's the first bit. The cross 
it's not something that started in 33 AD. The cross has a history. And as, as Christians, as Catholics, we need to appreciate the history then to understand the gesture and the prayer. So the gesture itself, you start at the head and think about what does the head mean scripturally? Well, in the Old Testament, priests, prophets, and kings were anointed with oil on their heads. And so as we begin the sign of the cross, we remember that Christ is priest, prophet, and king. And so we share, we share in, in the threefold office of Christ. We are also priests, prophets, and kings in Christ. What else about the head? The head is where your, your brain is, your mind, so it's where you think. And as you go down from your head to your chest, you're passing your sensory organs. These are the organs that you use to take in God's revelation around you. So as you do the sign of the cross, ask God to sanctify your mind and your senses. And then you come down past your torso, down to the pit of your chest, you, you know, your heart, your, your gut. Um, scripture tells us that God is the witness of our inmost feelings, a true observer of the heart. The Psalms say, search me, O God, and know my heart. God knows our inmost being, and we plant the cross in our inmost being. We don't go all the way down to the floor. We we stop right here in our, in our torso, right in the bottoms of our chest. And so as we make that vertical beam of the cross, ask God to sanctify your emotions and your will so that you can love and act the way that Christ calls you to. And then the shoulders are possibly my favorite part. Um, you go from one shoulder to the other, you're making the cross beam and what sits on shoulders? If we look back in the Old Testament, we find a lot of references to yokes, the yoke of slavery. Um, a yoke, a lot of times people will think of a yoke as something that a single person carries over their shoulders, maybe like a Scandinavian woman with two buckets of water or milk over her shoulders. But yokes are meant to be carried by animals. And they're not meant to be carried alone. They're meant to be carried by two animals side by side. And if you think about that, when Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, he's not saying like, oh, here, take this on your shoulders and let me tell you what to do. He's saying, stand next to me and take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Because how, does, how do you teach a new ox to plow a field? You yoke it to an old ox, an ox who knows. And so we find ourselves yoked to Christ rather than yoked to Satan by sin. We're yoked to Christ by the cross. And the shoulders are a sign of strength, um, of vitality. And so as you make the sign of the cross here, ask God to sanctify your strength. And then realize at the end of this prayer, you've just asked God to sanctify so much of you. You've taken the cross upon you, the cross that Christ was on, you've now put on yourself. That's amazing for one small, one small little gesture of a prayer like that, to, to, to pack that in there. I think that's amazing. And it, I mean, it, it breaks my heart too, in a sense that that's really been lost in the non-Catholic tradition, in, in the Protestant tradition. We've really, very few 
Protestant Christians would still be signing themselves before a prayer, right? It's not very common. I, I guess, I suppose in some, maybe some Lutheran or Anglican context, it, it, it happens. But for me, it was this thing, that this, this ritual that Catholics did, right? And here, here it is, the, the beautiful background to that. And, and wow, <laughs> that's an incredible prayer. And in the, in the entrance procession, in the mass before that, I mean, we're, we're just in the door, literally. We've already seen so much of Christ in the mass already. And the deep roots of that, that, that's incredible. And then, of course, the penitential rite. I mean, the thing to, to, to stop there for a second that I always, I, that struck me as a non-Catholic coming into the Mass and hearing those around me and, and, and being invited myself to, to confess my sins like that, to say, like, no, I'm sorry for things I've done, that I haven't done. It's, it's kind of remarkable that, because for me, for me, my faith was very personal in a, in a, in a non-Catholic context i would pray for forgiveness by myself you know in my in my room or on the, in the car on the way home from church when i cut off somebody or something but this this corporate this corporate everyone together asking for forgiveness and asking each other to pray for you know asking us all to pray for each other as you as you pointed out so poignantly i think is is pretty amazing right and just underscores the idea that as as catholics in this mass we're part of this body of Christ, right? And the, and the body, the whole body has to be at peace and, and repaired and, and ask for forgiveness from, from God and, and ask each other to forgive each other and to pray for each other. Like this has to, this body has to be, has to be operating optimally, right? And I think it's just so beautiful versus this really individual kind of approach to, to my, to my faith, right? Yeah. The, I mean, one of the greetings that the priest can use is uh, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And like the word used to be fellowship and now it's communion. And I'm sorry for all the Lord of the Rings fans who are like, we had that word fellowship and we lost (laughs) it. it, Um, But yeah, like the communion of the Holy Spirit, like from the get-go, we are being reminded at Mass that we are the body of Christ, many members, one body. And I'll say it again, the more you're familiar with scripture, the harder it is to ignore these things. If you're familiar with Paul talking about the body of Christ being many members with different functions and different gifts, but like if the body were all an eye, what would do the walking? And if I, if the body were all hands, who would do the seeing? Um, this amazing complementarity and equality within the body of Christ, um, it's, it's there just beneath the words. And if all you do is say the words, you're not going to get it. You need to think about the words and then you need to try and act on those words. Um, and, and that's like, that's why I, I love teaching about the liturgy to like, my eyes were open to this once a decade ago or so, and they're, they're open now. And I don't, like, I don't think I'm ever going to close them on this again. I, I love seeing other people's eyes be opened to this for the first time. I, I have a son who's almost two years old, and I've just started reading Bible stories to him at bedtime. And I'm really looking forward to the time when I can teach him the sign of the cross. He already says amen when we say the blessing at dinner, but like he doesn't he doesn't make the sign of the cross but I, I, can't, I can't wait to teach that to him and see his eyes be opened. I mean, I'll teach it to him in a way, you know, like a two or three-year-old can understand, 
but I'll have the opportunity to teach him again when he's older and he can start to understand the layers and the nuances. Um, that really is what brings me joy teaching this is having people say like, I mass this Sunday was so much more interesting than, than it was last Sunday because I'm paying attention now and I know these things and they mean more to me now because I'm not doing them simply because it says to do them. I'm doing them so that, so that they mean something to me personally. Yeah, and that's the big, you, you underscored this too in the book, and I want to mention this in a second, the idea of active participation in the Mass and what we should be actually acting in the Mass and being part of that. And and that, I think, is lost on so many, I mean, the people that I used to know, I, I keep coming back to this, I, I don't want to beat a dead horse or kill two birds with a stone, we want to keep the animals alive and, and happy on the show. But, but gosh, my idea of Catholicism from people who were Catholics, say, growing up in Catholic school or something, and, and then left the faith, was this ritualistic, repeated kind of thing. And, and the Mass was a really boring, going through the rote gestures kind of thing. But what I know that you mentioned in the book in Vatican II talks about, and one of the purposes of your book, and you, you, you've explained it just now, is you get people fired up about about this because you look at the things that are that are underlying all these these gestures and these prayers and and what we say and do, and we we should know those things because what we should be doing in the mass is taking part in the mass, right? I, I had Dennis McNamara on this show talking about the mass in general as this spiritual exercise, like this this workout that's meant to make us more like Jesus, like you know God's formula for working our bodies and minds and souls in the way that he wants us to, to be worked out to be more like him. And the mass is that the way of doing that. But we're meant to. Like, I'm sorry for all those people who who went to mass and saw it as this empty ritual. You gotta learn what it's about, what's going on there. And it's important for you and, and me and us Catholics to, to teach that because you're supposed to know, right? You're supposed to be participating in what's going on there in a real way by knowing the underlying things and, and being part of that, right? Not being not being somebody who's just going through the, the motions. We're, we're encouraged to participate in, in the liturgy, right? Exactly. Um, one of the one of the foundational statements in Vatican II, which was actually something that uh, Pope Pius X had mentioned and Pope Pius XII, this concept of, of actual or active participation in the Mass. Um, Vatican II, in its document on the liturgy, made it very clear that that participation is what we need out of the faithful. Um, and there was sort of this misconception that when the liturgy was revised, that the participation would just automatically follow. But you you can still end up falling into ritualism of simply external participation, standing up, sitting down, kneeling, saying these words, and then as soon as Mass is over, you're honking in the parking lot because, you know, the people are walking their cars too slowly. Yeah. Um, and so it, it wasn't enough simply to reform the liturgy. Um, and it's not like reforming the liturgy means that this sort of catechesis isn't necessary. Like there, there's plenty of catechetical material on the extraordinary form of mass, and there's lots on the ordinary form of mass. The need for teaching hasn't stopped because the form of the mass changed. But because people are participating externally, there can be this, you can forget to participate internally. Um, I think the average person who, pokes their head in at an extraordinary form mass will be like, 
the people might not be visibly doing anything, but they are like internally participating to the nth degree. That same person might look at an ordinary form mass and say, well, these people are, are doing lots of things, but what do these things all mean? Right, right. Um, and uh, so you're Canadian, but you're not, you're not French Canadian. <laughs> do, do you know, do you know a second language? A little bit. I, I know a little bit of French just being in Canada. So. Okay. Um, so you, you're not, let's say, let's say you wanted to learn Italian. Okay. Okay. Kind of do. How, how long do you think it would take you to learn Italian if you picked up everything, moved to Italy, moved in with a native Italian family and just lived with them? How long do you think it might take you to learn Italian? This sounds like a really good experience. I'm, I'm going to go for it. And, and not very long, I don't think, right? <laughs> okay. So maybe a, a couple months, maybe a year. Okay. So now let's say you're living with this Italian family, but you only leave your room one day a week to interact with them and the rest of town. So if you're only doing it one day a week, we got to multiply that one year by seven. So now it's going to take you seven years to learn Italian, living with an Italian family, but only interacting with them one day a week. And what if that one day a week, you only leave your room for one hour? So only one hour out of the week, you're actually talking with this Italian family and being exposed to the language. Now you have to multiply that by 24. So instead of it taking you one year to learn Italian, now it's taking you 168 years to learn Italian. And let's say when you get to Italy, you can't find a family that'll take you in. So you, instead you go to a hostel where a bunch of other people who don't speak Italian are there under the pretense that they're going to learn how to speak Italian. That's kind of the situation that a lot of Catholics are in they go to mass one hour a week and they're surrounded by a lot of other people who are only speaking this liturgical language one hour a week and they're not really going to learn it from one another and yeah there's the priest and the deacons and the ministers and hopefully they're they're able to speak the language of the liturgy but like if your only experience with them is the things that you know you have to say and do and a handshake on the way out and, oh, could you baptize my son? Like, you're not going to learn the language of the liturgy. And we don't have 168 years. Um, so that's why this sort of this sort of formation is necessary for the participation to really be external and internal. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. A great example. I'd love to go to Italy also if anyone out there wants to send me. That sounds fantastic too. But it, it, that's a great example because, of course, the, the people, yeah, I hadn't really thought of it that way before, around you wouldn't necessarily be very well-schooled in the liturgy either, right? And we see this in statistics too, but even with the Eucharist, right? The number of Catholics in 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 America that understand what the Eucharist actually is according to Catholic teaching is, is fairly, is kind of shockingly low in some cases, right? So, you wouldn't think that that liturgical competence or, or fluency would be that much higher either, right? You might, and again, this these are the people maybe that, that lead the church that you encounter as a non-Catholic Christian in, in your churches who who used to be Catholic, these ex-Catholics, right? Who who knew the the actions, who were kind of learning the the language, being there one hour one hour a week, but really didn't understand anything beyond the very basic. Like how to say hello or goodbye in that in that language, right? That's a great example. That that's why uh, when when I was in when I was on the RCIA team, one one thing that I would say every now and then is you can't just put a bunch of people who want to be Catholic in a room and leave them alone 
and come back an hour later and expect them to yeah. have suddenly gotten the Catholic faith. Yeah, like yeah. They, they need a teacher. Like if you look at the great commission, Jesus says, uh, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them all that I have commanded. So there has to be both this participation experience and this instructional exp- uh, teaching. Um, and, and you really, unless you have a priest who gives like very good homilies, catechetical homilies, unless you have a parish that has programs often and you attend them, um, then you're really not going to pick up these things simply by attending mass unless you really start to read scripture. And then you'll say, Oh, I know this part. And then with that scripture and liturgy lights turned on in your head, then you might say, did somebody write a book or is there a YouTube series I can watch that will help me understand these things better? Um, and, and again, like that's, I, I feel like it's kind of my apostolate or kind of my vocation to, to help teach people to appreciate the mass. Yeah, that's fantastic. So where are we going next? We, we've gotten the, the deep roots of, of the sign of the cross, of the entrance, the penitential act. I think there's incredible roots there. I think we're at the Gloria would, would be next by, by my measure. And I can see the clock. We're not going to get through this, this whole, the whole mass by any means. So I'll, I'll try to get us through the liturgy of the word. And, and that'll be a, a reasonable stopping point. The catechumens can be dismissed. You'll leave us, <laughs> you'll leave us hanging on for the uh, liturgy of the Eucharist. I think that's fantastic because we have to have you back for sure. I love it. I love it. The, the Gloria follows the penitential act, you know, on most Sundays. Um, and it occurred to me, Jesus cleanses the temple and he heals the sick. And the Pharisees aren't just upset that he's caused a ruckus in the temple, but then the Pharisees are like, can you shut these children up? They're singing Hosanna over and over again. And Jesus says, I tell you, if they were silent, the very rocks would cry out. And so what follows the penitential act? The Gloria. And the Gloria is one of the two places in Mass where the words of angels are put on our lips. The other is the holy, 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 but we'll have to save that for another time. But we begin the Gloria with glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to people of goodwill. And that's pulling from Luke chapter two. But those are the words that the angels sang to the frightened shepherds upon the announcement of the birth of Christ. And in the penitential act, we ask for the forgiveness of our sins, and the Gloria begins by promising peace to people of goodwill. And one sign that you are a person of goodwill is that you seek forgiveness for your sins, you seek to make amends. And the rest of the Gloria is almost like just a gloss, a human gloss on those angelic words. Um, in broad strokes, the Gloria kind of hits all four of the, like the traditional ends of prayer. Um, adoration, contrition, thanksgiving, and supplication. Um, the Gloria starts by saying, we praise you, we bless you, we adore you, we glorify you, we give you thanks for your great glory. We're like overflowing with adoration and thanksgiving to God. And then we follow that up by saying, you take away the sins of the world, have mercy on us. You take away the sins of the world, receive our prayer. You are seated at the right hand of the Father, have mercy on us. And again, those those are all scriptural phrases, but now we've switched from adoration and thanksgiving to contrition and supplication. Have mercy on us. We're contrite. 
hear our prayer, supplication, petition. Um, and so like the Gloria can kind of be a model for personal prayer, just like the Our Father can be a model for personal prayer. You, you begin your prayer by thanking and adoring God, and then you express your contrition and you place your petition before him. And another way then that we can kind of make the Gloria resonate in our personal lives is we pray to God for things a lot. We pray, we supplicate, we petition God often. How much time do we then spend in thanksgiving when God answers those prayers? Do we spend 90% of time asking for things and 10% of the time thanking him? Maybe we should try to balance those more. Um, and the other thing that the Gloria kind of teaches us, especially in the New Translation, is that repetition in prayer isn't always a bad thing. We say we praise you, we bless you, we adore you, we glorify you, we give you thanks. And then there's that litany, which, which used to just be two, and now it's threefold. The have mercy on us, receive our prayer, have mercy on us. There's no shame in presenting our desires before God often. Jesus tells parables about the persistent widow who won't stop knocking on the door of the unrighteous judge. God is surely not an unrighteous judge. God wants us to keep coming to him and asking to and, and asking him. So that's some of the things that the Gloria can can teach us about our lives. Um, adore, thanksgiving, be contrite, present your petition. Uh, so it's it's a good model of prayer. Um, and after the glory, we have the collect, that opening prayer, and then we say amen. And again, there's paragraphs and pages that could be written about the word amen. Jesus loved the word so much that in John's gospel, he never says it once. He always says it twice. Amen, amen, I say to you. Amen, or amen, it's this Semitic word that, like, it, it means like, yes, surely, certainly, absolutely. Uh, St. Augustine saw it as basically your signature on a prayer. When the priest or the bishop prays a prayer, the congregation signs that prayer with their names by saying amen. And one of the things that happens if you get really deep into scriptures, you start looking at Hebrew roots of words, and you start to find links to words that you didn't know. That passage from Exodus chapter 17 about Moses holding his hands up with the staff there's a word in there that says, and because of the men on his left and right, he held his arms steady for the entire bottle. And that word steady is emina, which comes from the same root as amen. So like when I found that out, I was like, <laughs> like again, this is this amen, this yes, this surety, this this certainty is hiding in scripture in so many places. Um, it, it really makes me wish, like, I'm a computer scientist, I'm a software developer, I don't have, like, schooling in Greek and Hebrew, a lot of what I learned about them is completely self-driven. Um, it really makes me wish I had the time to, like, learn biblical Greek and Hebrew so I could really get into these things even more. <laughs> Bringing up Exodus reminds me of the Liturgy of the Word, when, when God speaks to us through the scriptures— um, and we kind of give a response in faith when we say the creed, because the creed is, I believe. And so it's our response in faith 
to the words that God has spoken to us in scripture. And uh, oddly enough, the thing I want to focus on during the liturgy of the word is the sign of the cross that we make on our foreheads and our lips and our hearts, right as the gospel is beginning to be read. Um, there's no actual written prayer that accompanies it, but like traditionally there are all these little prayers. Uh, the one that I learned growing up and the one that I, I say mentally is, may the word of the Lord be in my mind and on my lips and in my heart. And thinking about that, when I was a child and I was an altar server, for the longest time, I didn't know what people were doing when they did that. Like I thought honestly, like everybody suddenly had an itchy forehead <laughs> and and saliva or something on their mouth. Like, and I, I had to ask, I actually had to ask someone, explain to me like, what is everybody doing at the gospel? Because we don't do it for the first reading or the second reading. I know that I'm paying attention there. Um, but so this gesture, we make the sign of the cross three times so Trinitarian, and we make it over our mind, over our lips, and over our heart. And again, that's got to be for a reason. So when you make the sign of the cross over your forehead at the beginning of the gospel, remind yourself that when you hear the word of the Lord, it can't just go in one ear and out the other. It has to stay in your mind. You can't just know of the gospel. You have to know the gospel. It's not enough just to know about Jesus Christ. You have to know Jesus Christ. And so if the word of God is in our minds, then it will direct our actions and give us peace of mind. And remember that when Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. So clearly the mind is an important part of the body when it comes to worshiping God. The lips, uh, St. James in his letters has some very, very violent things to say about the, the mouth. He says, the tongue is a fire. It's an unrighteous world among our members. With it, we bless the Lord and we curse other men who are made in the likeness of God. From the, mouse, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. It should not be so. And so when you make the sign of the cross over your lips, ask God to guard your language so that you never speak contrary to the gospel. And this isn't just like not using blasphemy or denying Christ. It means not being false witnesses to the gospel by the other things that we say. St. Paul says in Ephesians, let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for edifying, that it may impart grace. Um, and he says similar things in other letters because he, he repeats himself because the whole body of Christ needs to hear these things. And then we make the sign of the cross over our heart and there's a well-known psalm that says that we should not harden our hearts when we hear the voice of the Lord. And in the parable of the sower and the seed, the seed, which is the word of the kingdom, is being sown into the hearts of those who hear it. And just like it's what comes out of the heart that defiles man, if we can fill our hearts with the gospel, with the love of God, then what comes out of us will not defile us and it will not defile others. And of course, the Blessed Virgin Mary being an excellent model of reception of the word into her heart. In Luke chapter 2, uh, one of my favorite verses in Luke chapter 2, verse 19, Mary kept all these things that were happening around her at the birth of Christ, pondering them in her heart. 
and those words for keeping and pondering, you could also translate them as treasuring in her heart and encountering them. She treasured all these things and encountered them in her heart. So let that happen when we hear the gospel. Let us remember the gospel and, and encounter it throughout the course of the week. And so that, I think, kind of sums up the liturgy of the word. This, this quick sign of the cross that we make three times, maybe without even thinking about it anymore, just like we make the sign of the cross without thinking, it really sums up everything that we've been hearing during the liturgy of the word. I think the amazing, the amazing thing too, you mentioned this in, in the book elsewhere, uh, one of the things I encountered when I was beginning my, my Catholic life, and I stuck with it for quite a while, was praying the liturgy of the hours, the divine office. And you begin to, and of course that's just resplendent with, with readings from the Bible and, and prayers out of texts of the Bible. And, and you begin to encounter in, in, in going to Mass every Sunday and going to Mass during the week, even even more so in praying liturgy of the hours, these universal kind of ways of of encountering scripture that the church gives to us, you you begin to encounter these patterns, right, of scripture. You begin to see how scripture scriptures work together, the old and the new, in the in the liturgy, right, in in mass, and you begin to encounter these same these same scriptures in liturgy of the hours as well, and and then year over year, we begin to encounter them again at the same times of the year, and. And I mean, it's really, it, it takes me back to thinking about how, how Scott Hahn first encountered the Mass and just how much scripture is in there and, and how much so often you, you, you're making links, the church makes these links for you between different, different pieces of scripture and brings them to us in, in the liturgy of the word. How, how rich of an encounter that can be, just, just listening to, to the scriptures being read in Mass, like these connections that are made between old and new, between Gospels and the Epistles and, and the Psalms. And it, it's incredible, right? <laughs> these these yeah, connections, like, just listening, just being part of that liturgy uh, at Mass. Yeah, it, I mean, sometimes the connections between the first reading and the Gospel are so obvious that you really have to be out of the room to miss them. <laughs> yeah. um, and the responsorial Psalm, I mean, it's called responsorial for two reasons. One is the way that it's, the way that it's it's read, there's this response, but also because the psalm is a response to the first reading also. Um, really, the only odd one out is the second reading, which isn't always thematically linked to the first reading in the gospel because the second readings are coming sequentially out of the epistles, um, so they don't always fit in. But like, I think maybe like a top-tier homilist could maybe always find a way to, to tie in something that Paul or one of the other uh, epistle writers says, tie that in somehow to the, the first reading of the gospel. We're, we're, I know we're, we're coming up close to the end, and I, I really do want to be able to finish the liturgy of the word, and I think the best place to end it is with the prayer of the faithful, because, I mean, first of all, that's it's what ends the liturgy of the word, but also because for your listeners who might be thinking about entering the Catholic Church, the prayer of the faithful is the first thing that they will do as Catholics, um, especially if they're if they're going through RCIA and they're unbaptized and they're received into the church on the Easter vigil. If they've been going through RCIA, like every time they come to mass, they're dismissed after the homily. They don't hear the creed and they don't hear the prayer of the faithful. And so the first thing that they do once they've been initiated Part of that initiation process is a simplified version of the creed where they're saying, I do to the, the statements of the creed. 
But then when, when they're when they have been initiated, they've been baptized and confirmed, and they go back to their pews, the first thing they do is they exercise their priesthood in Christ by praying with the entire church, exactly as St. Paul asked them to. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, he says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all men. And at the end of this is in verse 4, it says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. And a lot of Protestants can get hung up on that. Like there's one mediator. So how are we now being intercessors? Well, St. Paul is asking for us to be intercessors. Intercede essentially means the same thing as mediate. Intercede means to go between, and that's what a mediator does. We are intercessors in Christ. And as as a baptized Christian, that is that is a high priestly act to, to pray for your people. And so the prayer of the faithful is when we as, as a body are praying for these needs of the church. And I, I so wish that parishes would like put the intercessions in the bulletin because it's so hard to remember what they are. And it's so easy to just like the lector or the deacon says what the intercession is and we say, Lord, hear our prayer, but we didn't pray it. Like to make those intercessions available throughout the week so that you can pray maybe one a day so that it can really be you who's praying for it, not just like, Lord, hear our prayer. Somebody's praying it. I don't know who. <laughs> um, but that way we'd, we'd really, again, take a part of the liturgy home with us and make it part of our lives throughout the week. Um, and that, that's where the liturgy of the word ends. Um, but really the best is yet to come. Yeah. That's a great. That's a great trailer, <laughs> teaser trailer. I love that. And you're right, because I mean, and that again struck me too as in my first encounters of the mass was that corporate prayer for these specific things. I mean, that's kind of amazing, right? Because for me, for me, my experience of, of prayer often was well. It, the context depends on on a lot of things, of course, because in our Pentecostal churches, prayer was very different in some cases <laughs> in terms of who was part of it and how it was going, but. I think in the case of many non-Catholic Christians, their experience of prayer would be the pastor at the front praying for things that that he was thinking about, right? But the but my first encounter of the prayers of the faithful was 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 wow! Like we people have have thought of other people to pray for, and these needs are being brought forth. And in some parishes, they're very specific needs of people who have who so and so is having a hip replaced. You know, let's pray for them. Or pray for all those who are sick this week and hear their names. I mean, it can it can get pretty specific and pretty amazing to think that across that church for that week, that 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 parish, those those masses were were praying as a whole body of Christ at that, at that parish for these needs is it, kind of remarkable to think of the of the power behind those prayers and the community coming together like that as the body of Christ, you've got a great point that it should be printed somewhere too, so we can actually carry that on and keep doing that. But, but I, it, yeah, it's, it's a remarkable thing like that, 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 and of course, exercising our priesthood as, as, as baptized, baptized believers, right. To be able to do that, to, to in Christ, bring those, those prayers forward. Yeah. Those are, those are fantastic points. Great place to end, but also to be continued. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Let's 
Let's pause here, though, and and let listeners know where they can go to find more resources from you because they're going to want to, I think, after hearing this first part of our conversation because this, again, I said before, this this fills in that gap between which this, this show intends to do, right? Between seeing a ritual or going to a ritual or, ritual or attending mass or seeing, or seeing a mass and it being this thing that you're just kind of doing to really empowering you to understand what's going on there. And look, in our, in our hour here, we I think you've really opened up. I mean, I I love the liturgy. I absolutely love the liturgy. And I'm learning new things, which I think is fantastic. I can only imagine listeners hearing this and 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 accessing some really amazing new details to then make that mass that thing they can be much more active in. So a long-winded way of saying, where can they go to find these resources from you? Um, I have to start by saying where they can't find it. Um, <laughs> despite my love for all things technological, I let my domain name expire, and now it's it's being sat on by some completely unrelated company. So <laughs> you cannot find my book at prayingthemass.com. Don't go there. Um, so the easiest way... Uh, you can find it on Amazon. The books are Praying the Mass, the Prayers of the People, and Praying the Mass, the Prayers of the Priest. It's, there's two volumes, one from the congregation's perspective and one from the, the clergy's perspective. Um, when I wrote these 10 years ago, part of it was it was going to be supplemental income for me because I was only working four days a week. Nowadays, I don't really need that. So if you look me up on Twitter... My handle is Jeff Pinion, J-E-F-F-P-I-N-Y-A-N. Uh, my pinned tweet there, as, as of the time of this recording, is if you are new to the faith or are considering the Catholic Church, just ask me and I will send you free PDFs of both books. Um, <laughs> but if you want a printed copy, you can buy one from Amazon or you can buy one directly from me. Um, and then the other thing is if you are interested in the tools that I've developed, uh, my website is catholiccrossreference, all one word, dot com. I have a catechism search engine uh, that's used by Flocknote for their read the catechism in a year. Uh, I have a church father's scripture search index. Um, and I have some other stuff. I have blogs that I just don't have the time to, to work on. Um, but yeah, Twitter is probably the easiest way to find me and get in touch with me. And I assure you, if you reach out to me on Twitter, I will respond to you. I am, I mean, I saw Keith's eyes open a bit tonight and that really gets me going as a teacher. So um, I'd love to see your Twitter eyes uh, opened. Um, I'd be very happy to help you. Absolutely. So. I'll tell you this too, Jeffrey. This is the best deal ever on this show. A, a free book. Dennis McNamara did not give away free books when he came on this show talking about the liturgy. So so you've one-upped him, but I'm having him back too. So he has the chance. The ball's in your court, Dr. McNamara. for giving away free stuff on this show. Jeffrey, an absolute pleasure. Listeners will hear from you again because this, this can't end here. Going to have you back for sure. Thank you for part one. I want to say absolutely God bless you in this fantastic work you are doing for the church. And thank you so much for being here. Oh, God bless you and may God continue to bless others through you. Oh, amen.
Well, there you have it, folks. My conversation with Jeffrey Pinion, part one. Stay tuned. Episode 127 coming up will be part two of this episode, the second half of the mass. And it only gets better. It only gets better. We talked for almost an hour and 45 minutes. Actually, more than that, almost two hours. We talked about the second part of the mass, and there's so much in there to unpack. So please do come back for that conversation as well. I'll put a link to Jeffrey's free book that he's offering listeners to the show in the show show notes and his website as well do check us out at thecordialcatholic.com we have a newsletter a weekly newsletter at newsletter.thecordialcatholic.com i'd love you to be a part of that community there as well we're on instagram and twitter at cordial catholic the cordial catholic on facebook and youtube.com slash the cordial catholic to watch this episode and many 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 more please do check that out and please do subscribe to that channel if you can that helps it to grow as well paypal.me slash cordial catholic for a one-time donation or patreon.com slash cordial catholic to support this show on a monthly basis if that's where you feel called to give some of your support we would appreciate that it's really helping guys uh, devote time to this to help to grow and to go and gosh it's 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 incredible so so thank you for your support guys please do pray for me know i'm praying for you too i'll talk to you again next week please come back thank you for listening and god bless take care guys This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcathy. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.